This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for June 9th, 2020. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and I'm very glad you're here, and wow. As has been the case the last several times we talked, a lot has happened since the last time we talked. Uh, We did actually think about not doing the show this week, but uh, we ultimately decided to. Let me really quickly explain why. First of all, the reason we thought about not doing the show was that we did not in any way want to be seen to be attempting to distract people from the major protests happening throughout the U.S. and indeed across the world against police violence in the U.S. and indeed across the world. That stuff's really important. Uh, we, We ultimately decided that it was most important to do what we do, but also make it clear where we stand. Um, If people need a little bit of distraction or to think about another topic for a while, I think that's valid and it's totally an okay thing to do and we will provide a place where you can do that. But also, we don't precisely want to forget what's going on. We don't want to ignore it. We don't want to pretend that it's possible to be neutral about this. Black Lives Matter, fucking obviously. And there are a lot of really important topics, areas of study, problems at play in what's going on right now, in which I am not an expert, and and wherein you should listen to people who are not me (laughs) to be educated. I do have, if not expertise, then experience, however, in the the area of protests and activism. So I I do want to say this. If you are someone who supports what these protests are trying to achieve in the abstract, but who has a hard time continuing to do so in sort of a full-throated manner once you see a window get broken, a fire get started. We don't have an epidemic of people stealing shit and setting fires in this country. We do have an epidemic of police wielding their power to hurt and kill the people they're supposed to be serving and protecting. Perspective. Okay. So, today, Greg Haynes is here. Greg Haynes from Able Gamers. I've been trying to make this interview happen for quite a while. We finally did. I couldn't be more excited to present this right now, especially. It's a good reminder, I think, that every important cause, every worthwhile organization that was in play before the current protests and indeed before COVID is still in play. And I think, you know, the the urgent moment we're in just reminds us of the importance of working to make the world a better place. Greg actually... Uh, did a blog post, an update to a previous one he'd done, an open letter uh, on the Able Gamer site that sort of connects those dots, uh, links in the notes. Um, but this talk, I should say, it took place before the protest started, which is why we do not talk about them directly in the interview. Uh, it focuses on Greg's work with Able Gamers in great specifics about how he works with players with disabilities and works with companies to foster best practices for making games welcoming and accessible to everyone. That's a huge mandate, and uh, Greg applies a lot of rigor to it, and I think it's a really solid conversation about what all that means and how it all works. So, thank you as always for listening, and enjoy. Well, 
Greg, thank you for being here. We have been trying to do this for a while. I think like maybe since two to three play NYCs ago. So <laughs> I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time. I know that you have a lot going on. And I know, as we were saying right before we turned on the mics, times are crazy in general. So uh, truly, thanks for being here. No, thank you for inviting me, man. I mean, it's been uh, <laughs> it has been a long like decade since we've been trying to get this together. <laughs> We're just going to call it a decade. We're going to round up. We're going to call it yeah. a decade. I feel like since March has been a decade. So it's been a good <laughs> quarter century. Since. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So so you're here to talk about your work with Able Gamers. Yes, so sir. we'll start in the simplest place possible and we'll branch out from there. For anyone who doesn't know about it, what is Able Gamers? Um, so Able Gamers is a charity, an organization that works within the gaming space um, to help people with disabilities uh, have access to uh, gaming and the gaming community at large. Um, the Able Gamers mission is, uh, you know, to, to create opportunities um, to, to foster, uh, you know, inclusive experiences and, uh, and allow people with disabilities and help people with disabilities to enter the community. Um, you know, ultimately, Able Gamers is a charity that wants to make sure the gaming community is accessible to anyone that wants to jump into it. Um, and our, our ideology, our approach is that gaming is a means to, to combat social isolation. It is a means to form connections that you wouldn't normally be able to, to, to form, um, you know, in, in, in everyday life. Right. And, uh, you know, yeah. speaking from, I think, both of our perspectives as, as people within the gaming community, I think we both see how valuable the gaming community is to, you know, to us and being a part of it. And the mentality is why shouldn't other people have that opportunity as well? Um, 100%. There's there's two sides to that, right? Like on, on the one hand, it's that games are simply for everyone, right? Everyone should be able to enjoy them. They should be able to bring everyone together. But it's also like that that opportunity for social connection is perhaps like even more important for somebody with a disability who can't necessarily like play team sports or do some of the other things people do together. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely depends on the person and the disability, of course. Um, but 100%. I did not mean to say that across the board, oh, anyone no. who able gamers would help can't play sports. Oh. Not what I'm saying. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just an, an example, right? Somebody who might be able to, for example, you know, like the adaptive controller that you guys worked with Microsoft on got a lot of attention. Yes. A lot of the folks who can use that are folks who probably can't join their basketball team at school or, you know, just as an example. Right. 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 Um, so therefore, it allows for people who maybe didn't have the opportunity to have that kind of connection to have that kind of connection. And that's extremely important. What it what it is is you know there are people who, regardless of of their their situation, it, there's a a shared experience that comes through gaming, right? Like even if we're not playing a multiplayer game together, right? Let's say we don't play the same game together, but mm -hmm. we're maybe I don't know in, in in the same class, right? And I come to class, and somehow the conversation of gaming comes up, and we both find out that we're playing the same game. All of a sudden, that's a connection that we we didn't have before, right? Well, that's a connection that totally is completely made from a hobby, a shared hobby, a shared experience that's outside of that environment. Um, and then, you know, you have people who, you know, their day to day might be, you know, they're, they're at home and they're not necessarily uh, in a position where they can go out and, and interact with people on a regular basis. So then you do have that online community where people can connect. Um, there's also this notion of, depending on the game, of course, this notion of, of having an avatar that reflects who you are and who you want to be in this digital world. Um, totally. While disabilities is incredibly important to the identity of each person in a disability community, I think there's a measure of being online and being anybody you want to be and being capable of anything that the, that 
that the game allows you to be capable of. So there's in in that sense there's unlimited possibility and 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 no boundaries. And I think I think that's enticing to a lot of people. I think that's why a lot of us, you know, play games ultimately. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really important point, right? Again, there's 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 sort of two sides to it, not opposing sides, but like two, you know, uh, complementary sides, I suppose, right? The idea that of representation is really important when you have a character who is a wheelchair user, for example, you know, in a game, that's amazing for a kid who is a wheelchair user who feels empowered, but there's also the amazing thing about games is that you can transcend whatever your actual physical circumstance is and be somebody else, you know, and that's that's incredibly powerful. I I think we maybe don't talk enough or not in enough detail as like a community of people who play games about that possibility, like the, the idea for empowerment, which is totally legit, but also just for empathy, right. the idea of like stepping into somebody else's shoes or stepping into a, you know, into, into shoes that are not necessarily yours day to day. That's that's really powerful. Right, right. And, and if you look at the the official mission of our charity, uh, you know, and, I, and I'll give you the, the I gave you the spark notes version of it, but, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. The lengthier version of it is to create opportunities that enable play um, so that we can combat social isolation, foster inclusive communities and improve the quality of life for people with disabilities. And what you have with those three three components there, you have the combat, combating the socialization, is, social isolation. It's the idea. We don't want to combat socialization. We want to open the no, door. Certainly to not, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's the idea that we want to you, we want to make sure the doors are open um, for connection and the ability to be able to, to form relationships with people through the gaming space. And then the idea of communities, again, playing on that idea of combating social isolation. The opposite of being socially isolated is being in a community, um, an inclusive cool. one at that, you know, one that recognizes all of our differences. Um, and while my experience is, is slightly different, I don't identify as having a disability. Um, but as a person of color, I can, I can certainly understand the idea of wanting to be in an inclusive community. Um, that's something that you know, we we constantly have to, to to deal with, and by we I mean many people of color in society today. Um, so I can relate to that on, on that level in that way. Although the experience is vastly different between having a disability, or you know, and, and identifying as a person of color, there is that commonality there. Um, and then you have absolutely, and then you have the last bit, which is improving the quality of life for people with disabilities. And you know, the idea of when you think of the quality of life, like what does that mean, right? Like. We're both, I assume we're both from the United States. I actually don't know if you're from the U.S. or Canada am, or something. I am, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm not from the U.S. People think I'm from Canada because I'm really polite. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm from the U.S. <laughs> I thought, you know, it's, it's, it's when you go to a convention, right? Like, people are from all over the world. And like, Very true, yeah. You know, when I when I met you, I was like, you know, you know, I got, you know, just a random person that I, I, I've met, you know. <laughs> hi, hi, you know. And then I'm like, wait a second, like. I don't know where he's actually from. I just no. I, I grew up for just for reference. I grew up in California, and California. I've, I've lived I've lived in a bunch of different places in the country. I was in Chicago ten years, um, and I'm I'm kind of up and down the East Coast now. I lived in New York for a bit, and now I'm living in Rhode Island. Right, right. I think we talked about that when we first met about you uh, spending some time in New York because I'm originally from New York, so I think we, nice, we vibed nice. on that level. Yeah, yeah. And I said my dad's from Long Island and all that. Yeah. So we, we talked about we talked about New York stuff for sure. Right. But yeah. To, to your point, we're both from the United States. Right. So. And it was you know that was also like ten years ago again. Back to what we were saying. Early. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when the, back with remember when the U.S. existed as a country? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, you know, back to back to the point at hand. You know, like we we talk about the pursuit of happiness in the United States, right? Like that's a huge thing. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and you know, for for people with disabilities, is are all three of those things openly available to them in this country at all times? You know, I I don't know, and 
for us when it comes to video games and it comes when it comes to the gaming community if we can if we can facilitate that in any way for the people in this country and the world at large because we do have people around the world that we've helped we can facilitate the idea of, of life liberty and that pursuit of happiness through video games then why why not why not try why not do that um and it, it also stems from the fact that our founder um, mark barlet you know he had a personal connection with someone um who had a, a disability a debilitating disability that took away that person's ability to game and when he tried to search for answers for that person's for that best friend of his um when he tried to find answers for her gaming you know uh, uh barriers he was unable to find them and he found that if that person was going through that if i can if i know someone so close to me that's going through that then there must be people all around the world going through that and in that sense, he wanted to, to open the doors for, for, for everybody. And, and I think that's what our organization sort of rallies behind, that idea of quality of life and, and the idea that how video games can, can vastly improve the experiences of our everyday lives. As we're seeing in the, in the current pandemic right now, you know, video game sales are at a, at a whole, all-time high. You know what I mean? People are buying video games. I mean, in in mass droves, and we're yeah. seeing the and power use, using of them that. to fill in the fill, using them to fill in the blanks of the social lives that we all feel like we're missing out on. Absolutely, and, and and to a certain extent, there's even a little bit of it being a, a diversion from the 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 stress that comes with living in a pandemic. You know, staying at home, um, socially isolating. Uh, you know, uh, to an extent, maybe even being at home with the same people all the time. You know, you need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's real. You need that's a different experience, even, even if you. No matter how much you love your your family or or your roommates or whoever you're living with, you can drive each other insane when you're with each other twenty four seven. That's just, that's simply reality. For sure, for sure. So you know, it, it's it's one of those things where we we look at the overall landscape of, of what gaming has done for each member of the organization personally, and I think that sort of fuels uh, what we do every day, um, and then the lives that we're we're able to to to, to affect by the work we're doing. It's 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 a it's an incredibly rewarding experience in that respect, and uh, you know I think we're we're all really proud to see that the gaming community at large is, has really sort of started started talking more about accessibility. I have in the last, I mean, I you probably have a much better sense than I do of exactly what what time period we're talking about here. But over the last, let's say, two years, I feel like the conversation has become a lot more visible. Um, you know, you have Square Enix doing stuff for the uh, for the the, the recent of the twenty first. Right. Um, I think the, the the event was called the Global Accessibility Awareness Day. Is that right? Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. You were gonna say something though. I didn't. Yeah. I mean, again, no. you know way more about this than I do. That's why you're here, man. No, you're all good. You're all good. Um, I'm just. I'm just. I'm eager to talk. You know what I mean? I'm happy to talk about it. No, go stuff. for it. It's yeah, exciting. Please. It's exciting that the conversation has been changing. I mean, you know, Global Accessibility Awareness Day, uh, or GAD for short, short. I'll probably just say that since it's less of a tongue twister. GAD works, yeah. GAD, uh, GAD is, has been around for several years. Interestingly enough, our organization has been around for, for 15 years. Actually, we're, I think we're even, I think this year might be 16 years. So we've been around for some time, and the conversation has, has not always been as 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 mainstream as it is now um and i've been with the organization for two years so i've kind of seen that 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 boom that you've spoken of right because before i was with the organization i know that i wasn't really hearing about accessibility like i know that for a fact um and obviously when i joined the organization there's a little bit of bias there because i'm now attuned to the the notion of accessibility but i can i can firmly say as someone who you know i used to be a content creator um I was I had my ear to the ground with the things going on in the gaming space, and accessibility really wasn't 
wasn't really the topic of conversation. Um, but you know, I think, I think in the last few years, maybe three, three, four years, the conversation has really started to, to gain momentum. Um, and I think we started seeing the floodgates open around the time the, the Xbox adaptive controller came out. Um, yeah, yeah. So interestingly enough, you know, the adaptive controller is actually based on, um, something that, uh, we design we designed and created uh, several years ago. I mean, we're talking probably maybe eight or nine years ago. Um, it could be even longer than that. But it was called the Adroit Switchblade. Um, it basically had the same capabilities as the Xbox Adaptive Controller does now. Um, the difference was it was um, it was handmade, um, and the price to hand make that was roughly four hundred dollars. And that was before you factored in uh, some of the buttons that and, the, and attachments you'd need in order to make it work, just like the XAC. Um, does you know we call those switches basically there are things you plug into the main hub and those switches you know serve as buttons like on a controller um but you're talking when, when we say it's adaptive it's not just that you can remap any of the buttons which is great and a thing that is becoming a standard feature on a lot of platforms sure. which is good which we can talk about sure. but it's also that you can actually expand what the controller includes that's really important right right you can you can redesign what the button layout is for yourself and that's what what makes it so important. And with the Adroit Switchblade, it was uh, you know it was a great device, um, but again, handmade and four hundred dollars. Um, and you know we formed a relationship with Microsoft, and Microsoft was like, hey, uh, can we can we have one of those? And we were like, yeah, you can have one, just don't sue us. Uh, <laughs> and because it's actually it's actually based on a uh, the innards of the Adroit Switchblade was actually a three sixty controller. So, really? Yeah. That makes that makes a ton of sense because that's it's famously like the most compatible controller if you're if you're playing a game on a PC, right? It's, right. It's the one where you can usually plug it in and it'll just work without any nonsense. Right. Right. So you know we basically so basically it was a, a gutted 360 controller placed in a, a a black box and you know soldered onto whatever it needed to be soldered on onto and and they it created this this box that allowed you to plug different things into it uh, like the XAC. Um, so Microsoft, you know, we gave one of those to Microsoft and, and, you know, Microsoft came back to us and over the course of about, you know, two to three years, we, you know, we worked closely with them to, uh, to, to get that out there to market and the Xbox adaptive controller was born. And what that is, is that's a cosign, you know, to the, the larger gaming sphere. Microsoft is one of the biggest companies in the, in the gaming sphere right now. It's one of the biggest companies in the world. It's a trillion dollar company, you know, today as we, as we speak. So when a trillion dollar company waltzes into the gaming space and says, hey, this matters, accessibility matters, that changes the way everyone thinks. Um, and also from a business standpoint, you know, not for nothing, it does change the, the way people are approaching their business because like, oh, this competition is doing something different that we're not doing. How can we how can we step it up? And uh, absolutely. Yeah. And now that's just that's in their range of controllers for for not for four hundred dollars, but I think it's a hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. It's like ninety nine ninety nine. Right. It's a hundred dollars. So the, the price is is less than than the switch, the, the adroit switchblade. And, uh, you know, it's manufactured by a company in a factory. So you can just walk into a store and pick it up and put it in your cart and walk out the door or you can order it on on the Microsoft store. Like it's super easy that's right, to grab yeah. that, you know? And as you say, that's important in and of itself, but it also means that, you know, there's, there's some degree of pressure on Sony or Nintendo or whoever, uh, valve to, to, you know, either step it up or know that their competitor is doing something that they are not doing like on a very fundamental level in terms of a, like just to put it in the coldest, most cynical terms, not because they're the ones that, that matter exclusively, but because that's what moves stuff under capitalism, right? That there's an addressable market 
that their competitor is addressing and they're not right. Like that's a lot of people you've opened the conversation up to right, uh, right. That, that were left out before or had to sort of, you know, figure out a way in without a solution that was made for them. Right. And you know, that, that ties into what I do at Able Gamers. Uh, my official title is the lead games user researcher um, at, at, with the organization. And what the goal of, of the research we do is, is, is to educate the, the community at large about, there being a, a viable market in the gaming space to appeal to that capitalist mindset. Because, you know, I'll be honest, we know that I know it's the right thing for people to be able to play a game. I know it's the right thing that accessibility uh, be prioritized and, and that be a focus. I know that's right. But often we see, and I'm not saying that these businesses don't care about people with disabilities. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we know that businesses have to operate from a, a, a financial perspective. Um, and I think that generally speaking, there was a, a dearth of knowledge and still is a dearth of knowledge about how many potential people with disabilities, players with disabilities are out there. Um, so, you know, uh, myself and Chris Powers, the, the vice Chris Power, not Powers, uh, Power, the vice president of, uh, of Able Gamers and, and uh, you know, my, my mentor in the, in the leadership in the research realm, I should say, uh, we, we decided to look and, and try to find out how many people with disabilities there are in the country that want to play games, how many players there are that identifies having disability. Um, and looking at numbers from the ESA, we looked at numbers from the census. Um, we looked at a number of sources and, and we finally were able to, to, to extrapolate the number of 48 million potential players with disabilities uh, in the United States. Um, and let me tell you, when we were able, when we were able to walk into, you know, walk up to a company and say, Hey, do you know, there's like potentially 46 million companies or our customers uh, in the country that you could be servicing if you made your game more accessible, all of a sudden yeah, that it, light bulb goes off. You know, when we say that for adults in the United States, the CDC says that one in five adults have a disability, that all of a sudden you're like, wait, how many people have it? It, it changes the mindset. It changes yeah. how you approach things. Because now all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's a whole market I can tap into. Um and, you know, this is the same to, to tie it back to you said how like the, the experience of being a person of color is not exactly analogous. And you weren't saying that it was to, to having a disability. There's a parallel here in the sense that, you know, things are changing in terms of representation in media, not because someone woke up one day and like or got visited by three ghosts or whatever and, and learned that it was the right thing to do. But because they've realized that the people they weren't addressing have spending power. And so things change. I wish more people would just wake up and see a ghost that would tell them that. The ghost <laughs> That'd be fantastic. I mean, if, like, can we like sounds like a scale solution to me but, uh, <laughs> but until that starts happening we have you know we, appealing to that more sort of you know uh pragmatic or or, or dollars and cents uh, uh you know way of thinking is the way we move things forward absolutely absolutely so you know i think you know to tie it into the to, to the idea of of the, the the arena sort of changing i think i think it was changing before the xac came out but i think the floodgates sort of opened and, and people started paying attention when that happened. Uh, you know, we saw Logitech uh, come out with the Logitech gaming adaptive gaming kit, um, which mm. creates, uh, you know, affordable peripherals that can be used in tandem with the Xbox adaptive controller. Um, we see, we saw uh, Sony come out with the, the back attachment um, for the PlayStation four controllers um, that, you know, adds two extra buttons to the back and could, back of the controller like we're, we're seeing we're seeing a number of studios uh you know adapt official uh practices in the in the accessibility realm i mean on as as we saw actually today uh square enix um they released an article talking about marvel marvel's the avengers today being the time of recording uh may 28th um so they they talked about you know uh 
Crystal Dynamics and the approach that that they've had to accessibility, um, you know, and we were we were lucky enough to be able to uh, to go to uh, Crystal Dynamics myself and, and Mark Barlay, um, and actually administer this two day course that our organization has developed called Accessible Player Experiences um, to help these developers sort of understand what people with disabilities what type of experiences they're they're looking to have in games. Um, so this APX practitioner course, as we call it, APX being accessible player experience um, course is, is a two-day course that allows developers to sort of get a better idea of, of some of the barriers that people with disabilities might be encountering in games. Um, and we saw Crystal Dynamics kind of talking about that. And and also they brought in, uh, you know, uh, Cherry uh, Thompson um, and you know, Cherry Thompson is a is a accessibility consultant in the space um, that is is incredibly vocal about uh, about the considerations and thought process that needs to go into games from an accessibility standpoint. And uh, Crystal Dynamics brought them in and uh, you know had them scan uh, motion capture uh, Cherry in a wheelchair and the motions that Cherry has when uh, they're using a wheelchair in order to accurately uh, capture how someone in a wheelchair might move realistically. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing there is the the notion of, of bringing in someone who has a disability to improve that experience and to diversify the, the portrayal of it, of, of people with disabilities in their game. And that that's remarkable. That's um, huge. That's, that's huge. that, that, um, there's a, my, my wife works in theater and there's a phrase that I think applies to the space you work in too, uh, that, that, that folks use a lot there, which is nothing about us without us. Right. Right. So if, if you're going to be representing a group, uh, you know, or, or a person with a certain identity, uh, you know, you, there's vigorous arguments to be had about whether the actor portraying this character, let's say, has to have that precise experience, how much wiggle room there is there. Right. Don't want to get into all the like nitty gritty of that right now, because I think it's a huge topic. But the most important thing is they or someone on the creative team or someone has to have that experience because it's going to be better. <laughs> like the work is just simply going to be better if that's the case. Right. And, you know, to that point, you know, like, Again, you know, going back to to what I said earlier, you know, I don't necessarily identify as having a disability. Um, and my role with the organization is is that I'm an, I'm an advocate. You know, my idea is to give a, a is to to talk to people and, and and sort of open up the the floor for other people to be able to ref- accurately talk about their experiences. Other people with disabilities to actually come in and and have that opportunity to to speak to their experience. Um, when you talk about APX, you're, these are not just sort of like like academic concepts you've come up with or patented or whatever. When you talk about bringing the feedback of players with disabilities, you're talking about in you know data you've gotten from the player panels. Exactly. I think you have about roughly 600 players with disabilities who give you information about how they you know what 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 works for them, what doesn't, what they need. Uh, is that's that's the data you're talking about when you talk about forming best practices, right? Exactly. I can tell you've done your research, Drew. Uh, I can tell you've read <laughs> I up. I don't want to. I, I don't want you to come on here and do the same interview you've done six other times. I want to give you the chance to go go a little deeper, talk about something else, you know, like all of that. <laughs> I appreciate that. But uh, but yeah, the the player panels program um is a program comprised of of about six hundred players with disabilities. Um, and and these players are first of all they're s- such eager participants. I mean. The, the, we've seen incredible uh, participation from these players and some of the opportunities we put out there. But uh, essentially, these players, um, they, they participate in some of the research studies that we, we have in-house. Um, a number of them have worked with uh, companies to improve the accessibility in their games um, because that's another aspect of the program where 
companies can come to us and and utilize uh, this resource. We, they can come to you know us, present an opportunity that they may have, and um, you know we'll advertise that to the players in the program, and um, you know we'll uh, we'll relay interested players back to that company, and we'll connect them. Um, and access to the to the program is free for uh, people. Um, for companies who might be interested in in, in reaching out, um, we only ask that the players that ultimately uh, answer to those you know opportunities are compensated reasonably for their time, um, because it's important to us that people with disabilities um, are being compensated for accurately compensated and adequately compensate, compensated for present providing their experiences inside into their experiences um that's huge and something that gets left out of the equation oh, so yeah. much oh, and yeah. it's also it's all yeah oh <laughs> completely, absolutely completely. i mean i mean when you when you look at like you know game testers where there's a notorious rep, or, you know reputation of game testers being underpaid like we yes. we want these players to get you know industry competitive rates when it comes to the the insight they're going to provide because you stand you being a, a company stand to make more money from the insight they're going to provide to you and not only that like these players, their time is valuable and, you know, we want them to be able to build up their resume so that they can essentially go out into the space and, and find jobs uh, and, and, and be able to work in a space in the, in the same way that, you know, my, you know, I've been lucky enough to, to, to work in the space. Um, so, you know, player panels is this, you know, this, this program that kind of sprang, sprang out of uh, the mind of Chris Power, um, our, our VP. And uh, I, it's about three years old now. And, we decided that, you know, we wanted to find out what are, you know, what some of the barriers that players are, are experiencing in their games. We wanted to find out what are some of the, you know, options and features that they, they are using in games and what are some of the experiences that they want to have in these games. And by looking at some of the data that, uh, you know, these players provided, um, we started to see sort of sort of patterns in the research, or, or as Chris would say, echoes in the data. Um, mm. And... Through this data, we, we sort of were able to, to extrapolate themes um, and identify what eventually became uh, what, what we call de design patterns. Um, so these design patterns, there's 22 of them in the entire accessible player experience suite. Um, these design patterns present barriers um, that players with disabilities may be experiencing, uh, as well as solutions to those barriers. Um, now, it might not be, it's not as simple as saying, oh, this person can't play your game. Here's how you can make them play their game. We, you know, we want to make sure the language clearly identified, uh, you know, some of the barriers they might be experiencing. For example, you know, a barrier might be players having difficulty reading the text in your game. Um, so the solution for that would be to present options that allow a player to alter the text in the game, whether it be the size, the color, the background of text in the game, um, so on and so forth. Um, so... In, in designing and, and in extrapolating this data, um, we realized that that players were were identifying these barriers on two levels. So on the first level, on the ground level, we had access barriers. So these access barriers are things that interfere with sort of the input and output um, of, of gameplay. So input being like, you know, controls, uh, being able to, you know, I don't know, accurately, uh, accurately hit a, a, a button um, when the prompt appears on the screen, um, mm -hmm. knowing that they need to even press a button when the prompt is on the screen, yeah, um, knowing that this is gameplay and not a cutscene, clearly. I right? mean, yeah, being able yeah, to yeah. being able to even uh, you know comprehend what's going on. Um, you know, I think a great example of 
you know, an access barrier is, let's say, for example, uh, your character levels up in a game, right? Uh, normally, let's say at the base level, when a character levels up, there's just something that appears on the screen. It says level up. You're now level 48. Well, that's really, you're presenting that level up via one channel. That's a visual channel, right? You have to be able to read that text in order to know that you've leveled up. Um, but what if you added an additional channel? What if there was now a sound that accompanies your level up? You know, a little bring. So now what you've done there is you've added a second channel so that the leveling up isn't entirely presented via a visual channel. It's now presented through an audio channel as well. Um, you could even add a third channel. Maybe there's now... Uh, your controller vibrates. So there's a little bit of a haptic feedback now that you've leveled up. So you you have now have three channels to identify that you've leveled up. And now you've sort of addressed different barriers that people might have um, in perceiving that they've leveled up. Um, so what that is kind of an example of is our second channel pattern. That's one of the patterns at the axis level where someone cannot perceive information through the one modality that you've provided that information through. So instead, you provide them with an alternative modality for them to perceive that information. The alternative modality in that example being uh, the sound accompanying the level, the level up and the haptic feedback uh, accompanying the level the level up. So, which means when when that's when that multiple modality notion is baked into the design, then you don't necessarily have to have an alternate mode for a person with with disability X. They, you know, all sorts of different folks can just play the game because you've thought about it from the beginning, right? And then on, from an output perspective, because that's kind of that's kind of you know that's more that's more the output idea, right? From an input and output perspective, sure, you sure. have two sides of it, so that's kind of the output, right? But even then, people might need to tune that level of output in a way that allows them per to perceive the information that isn't overwhelming them or isn't uh, you know, triggering some of the symptoms they might experience due to their disability. So maybe the vibration is too strong. So you want to present ways for people to turn down that vibration or maybe to space out the vibration so that it's spaced out over a shorter period of time or a longer period of time. Uh, you know, Maybe uh, the visual level up comes with a bright flash. Maybe someone who, who has you know, uh, to maybe triggered by bright flashes can turn that down a little bit. You know, maybe the, the, the sound for the audio is a little too loud with the level up. So you want to be able to present uh, audio channel levels that can be adjusted to create the optimal experience. So and, and then on the input level, you know, you, you, you look at that and you're like, OK, well, all right, I, I know I leveled up. OK, can I move forward into the, the next area now? I don't know. Do, do the controls allow me to do that? Can I press forward on the, is, is the button that's presented as the forward button a button that I can actually access? So on, yeah. the, on that- or if, I, if I leveled up in, in, the, in a Diablo-like game, right. which gear can I now equip? Exactly. Right? Is that only presented visually or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, all these patterns, um, and there are 12 particular access patterns revolve around that that cycle of input and, and output. And what we, what we identify as the, the player loop. So, you know, the player loop is a player takes action in a game, there's a change in the world state as a result of that action, and then a player subsequently can perceive that change in the game state so that they can then take another action in the game. Um, and anything that interferes with that player loop is essentially an access barrier because it's not allowing them to access the game and, and uh, interact with the game in a way that they need uh, to interact with in order to you know, continue on to make progress. Um, so at the first level, you have those access patterns and obviously I'm not going to go into all of them, but that was kind of the idea behind it. So then on the, on the, no, that, that's great. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and then on the second level, um, just looking at that player data, we start to see that beyond being able to access the games, there was an idea of challenge. There was an idea that players wanted to be able to, to progress in a way that was, was you know, compatible with the experience that they desired and their disability. Um, and when you look at the idea of progression, right, and you look at the idea of, of moving on, let's, let's go back to that level up example. So where challenge operates is, okay, now we've leveled up, Drew. We, we, we have a, a new level in the game. We're level 48. Do, Hell yeah. Do, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Do we, <laughs> do we understand what level 48 means for us, mm. right? Do we, do, do we understand that maybe new armor has been unlocked for us to use? Oh, yeah, I, jump, I jumped the gun a little bit. Like, we weren't even as far as grokking the information attendant to the level up. We were still just talking about, like, knowing you leveled up and, and knowing that you can do something next. Right. This is really important, which is what new gameplay is available to me. Right, what new, what new paths are available to me? Um, so there's this idea of, of learning, right? Because first you need to learn what leveling up even means. There's this idea of decision-making, right? Because, you know, you, you need to know, you need to figure out what do I do next? There's this cognitive aspect where you're trying to figure out, okay, what does a level up mean? What does that mean for my overall gameplay? How does, how does that affect my gameplay? How does that affect what I do next? And then there's the, these, there's this idea that's not necessarily reflected in this example, but the idea of emotional content as well. So let's say that level up means that you now have access to a dark and scary level that maybe has something that's potentially triggering for someone who has, you know, uh, who, who has experienced an emotional, uh, you know, uh, an emo- a deeply emotional uh, experience in their past. Let's say there's yeah, it could be a, it could be a literal psychological trigger in the sense of post traumatic stress disorder. It could just be something that is more intense for some people than others due uh, to past experience or whatever else. Absolutely, it could be something as 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 relatively common as gore. Right. In a game. Yeah. 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 You yeah. Know, what if you're now in an area where there's tons of gore? Like, can you now change? Can you now uh, adjust some of the emotional experiences that you're going to you're going to encounter? So these four aspects, which is, you know, which are really cognitive uh, aspects, uh, decision making, um, emotional and then performative aspects sort of factor into challenge. And this notion of can I proceed in the game? Can I make progress? Can I move forward in the game in a way that allows me to have a fulfilling experience? Um, and once you get past those access barriers, that's when you're going to start seeing the, those challenge barriers. And, and challenge is a little bit more complex. I think we've seen a lot of people sort of uh, understanding access a little better better now in games. You have subtitling that that's you know improving. You know year after year, you have uh, control remapping. You have you know, uh, being able to change things in, in the HUD. You have so many different things on, on the on the access level. And the challenge level is where we start seeing, uh, you know, uh, that issue sort of come into light. Um, you know, and, and it's largely, you know, it's largely boiled down into the idea of game difficulty, um, which is is part of the part of the conversation, but not the entirety of it. Because the interesting thing about game difficulty is that you know, when we think about game difficulty, right, we think about gamers and our love for agency, right? We want to have choice in games. We want to be able to choose how we want to interact with the game. <laughs> game difficulty is, interestingly, one of the more limiting ideas of a game, right? Because really what game difficulty is, is a developer or a team of developer developers have, behind the scenes, created these invisible settings that are hid, hidden behind the words, maybe easy, uh, normal, hard, very hard. And there are a bunch of conditions that have sort of been uh, activated for each of those levels. And we just sort of accept that. We're just like, okay, 
this is the norm. So I guess I'll pick normal, not even fully knowing what the normal difficulty entails. Now we have games now. Yeah, I think I was going to say your your average player with a, with a you know uh, who who does not identify as as uh, as living with disability in any way, uh, who considers themselves you know a, a, a you know for lack of a better term normal player, and I'm saying that like wiggling my fingers, will often just pick normal because they they think okay that's the way the developer intended it, and not think of it any further. And if they have trouble, think that it's more about them than the game. Get good or whatever. Right, and and you know what the interesting thing is, what is a normal or or easy experience for me may not be an easy experience for you. It may not totally. be an easy experience for the next person. Um, and when you look at something like game difficulty and that notion of of settings essentially locked behind uh, subjective words, um, you know, because even the idea of normal, like what does normal even mean? You know, uh, it's, <laughs> right, right. You know, hidden. Well, some, sometimes it's more pejorative than that, right? Like easy Absolutely. is like you know, like dumb cowardly baby mode or something, right? Uh, you know, and and that's not great for its own reasons. But when you're talking, I don't mean to cut you off. No, but when you're, you're good. When you're talking about this, what I'm thinking about partly is uh, the YouTuber Mark Brown, who, who uh, whose channel is called Game Makers Toolkit, mm-hmm. uh, because he both does sort of a the year in accessibility roundup every year, like what games were good, and I think I think it really is more about the access than the challenge stuff to sure. use the terminology you're using sure. for the most part. But he also talks a fair bit about difficulty and he has connected a to b a little bit uh some games are getting a lot better about not being quite so opaque with their difficulty settings right, right uh right. the stealth game invisible ink for example or celeste which is a really hard game that lets you tune different aspects of its difficulty right. in a pretty granular way yeah celeste is great. um yeah yeah that's i mean i i wanted to bring up that example because it seems like such a great counter argument to the idea that well if we're thinking about the challenge part of accessibility as well as the initial access part we're removing a color from the from the paints that developers can work with because they're not allowed to realize their creative vision by making it as hard as x or, or whatever i think celeste shows that you can do both yeah and you can do it in a way that is explicit and clear and doesn't take anything away from anybody only adds absolutely and and you know i'm not Again, you know, like you know, I haven't necessarily uh, hit the point that I'm trying to hit here. I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying uh, easy, normal, very hard, or hard or, or or bad. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just the notion of options in that respect. So, you know, yeah, no, with, even having those, but explaining what they mean, right? Like right. In, on normal, you do normal da- You know, you do twice the damage on easy, or, or enemies do twice as much to you on hard, or whatever. Just like making it explicit so you know what, it's not a blind choice. Right. Like I saw that, I remember seeing that in, in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, where they explain yeah. what the difficulty, you know, is. And a lot of games have been doing that. But then you have another aspect of that, which is, you know, sort of like the Tomb Raider approach, right? So, you know, the Tomb Raider approach might be, all right, you do have these options of, of, of easy, you know, normal. I don't know what the exact difficulty names are, but along those lines, like, you know, explorer or, you know, <laughs> hardened, hardened veteran, you know what I mean? Whatever the, the name is. Um, but, sure. you know, you have those sort of uh, rigid or and, and more predefined difficulty levels. But then you might also have something along the lines of a, a slider that's like, okay, like this slider is the combat slider. How difficult you do you want combat to be? On the left side, you know the 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 lower the the, the lower end of the of the 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 spectrum here, combat's going to be relatively easy. Maybe you have more health. Maybe you your enemies are easier to to take down. And on the on the the, the sort of further end of of the the slider, it's okay. You are easier to take down, um, and enemies are way more resilient. And people are able to change just the combat slider to adjust how combat is. Uh, you might be able to adjust the exploration slider. Where, you know, uh, uh, 
things in 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 the environment appear easier to see on on the lower end but you know on the sort of further end it's you know things there are no outlines for the path that you should go on and you kind of have to figure things out on your own and you sort of see this more granular take on uh game difficulty and the idea behind that and and the larger idea of challenges being able to tune challenge to the level of challenge that you want you know the awesome thing about options is that they're optional you know it's <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's if you want to play very hard play very hard i i i, I play games yeah. on hard sometimes sometimes i'm like yo i want to play this game and at a level that's incredibly challenged to me i want to cry when i go to sleep after playing this game you know what i mean as a matter of fact panel the panel the panel the pond just came out on the uh the, the snes flicks you know the snes thing on the switch i <laughs> yeah. will only play that on very hard because i played it so much as a kid right, right. But there's no other way for me to feel anything right um there's you know that isn't true for me in every game necessarily sure sure like i love bloodborne like i i enjoy that like i definitely mm-hmm. like you know want to jump into to more souls like games um but you know this idea that you know by opening up a more granular experience to tune difficulty to the level of challenge that you want to have uh, is, is sort of interesting to me as, especially as gamers where it's like, we love agency except when it comes to difficulty. Like I don't, you know, I don't quite. <laughs> right. Right. Like we, well, okay, we, two important points. Yeah. 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 Again, I, I do. I don't mean to keep jumping in. You're just no, getting it's, me excited. It's, it's all good. But... <laughs> it's just cool. Go you on. know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it's like, Oh my God, I hate that there's a microtransaction in this game, but you know, like, you know, it's like, that's a, that's the holy grail of messing up right there. Like, oh my God, you're trying to make me buy something. But hey, man, I love the way you, you I love the, the way you outline these difficulty levels. I mean, I, I sure do love what normal is, whatever that means. You know, it's like, it's really weird how we're kind of accepting of that. And this sort of this, this sort of resistance and, and this idea that you're maybe changing the creator's, the developer's vision. vision yeah. And I'm like, the, it's a weird rite of passage almost. I mean, especially, you know, you brought up Bloodborne. Sure. The From Software games are definitely a thing where some people feel like you can't, because it's a badge of honor if you complete it or something. Certainly. So you can't possibly mess with the, the blistering vision. Certainly. Um, and you mentioned Jedi Fallen Order, which is a really interesting example to me because when uh, Sekiro, uh, you know, at time of recording the newest From Software game, yep. we'll hear about Elden Ring sometime soon, maybe. Yeah. Hope. Uh, Same. But, um, <laughs> When Sekiro, yeah, right. I'm so stoked. So stoked on it. Um, when when Sekiro came out, I know the conversation was sort of, how would you even begin to have a difficulty slider for Sekiro? Sure. Um, sure. And there was a whole conversation about that. Some of it was productive. Some wasn't. I'll actually link to an episode of the No Clip podcast where Danny O'Dwyer, the host of that series, uh, interviewed a a, a a player who only has use of one armor. I think maybe only has one arm sure. and got through Sekiro with a very custom controller setup. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, Jedi Fallen Order is a really good answer to the question how would you do a difficulty slider in Sekiro because it doesn't remove the parrying mechanics it just gives you a much wider window in which to parry Mm. it doesn't make the enemies boring HP soaks it just makes them more aggressive like these are actually pretty interesting answers to that question yeah and it lets you let's move on and and the other thing you, you brought up and then i swear i'll let you talk no you're good I, I i i'm vibing <laughs> off what you're saying man we're, cool, cool. we're good, sitting good, good. here we're just vibing off each other i, I love it you brought I, I think it's important in what you said the example of like um how much information you get about where you're going next on the map mm-hmm. that to me is a really good example of how challenge as a category of accessibility is not one-to-one with difficulty sure because like Absolutely. when i was playing breath of the when i was playing breath of the wild i turned off I did like the minimal UI almost immediately, like wandered around, whatever. There is an obvious sense in which that is more, more difficult or more challenging, but it isn't presented as hard mode. It's just presented as an option. If you want this information on the screen about like what the temperature is and the mini map and, and whatever, you can have it. And if you don't want it, 
you can turn it off. Simple as that. Right, right. And, you know, to, to the point of of difficulty not necessarily equating to challenge, if anything, our, our use of the word challenge sort of is, is encompassing of the idea of difficulty. You know, we find that when, when players are, you know, uh, the idea of somebody changing uh, a game to meet their level of difficulty or, or sorry, their level of challenge, um, the idea is they're not necessarily experiencing less challenge because they're playing on a different type of setting. Their level of challenge is relative to their ability, for lack of a better word. You know, so mm. if, again, going back to the notion of what's easy for you may not be easy for me, when I play on, you know, uh, on easy, it may be hard for me to play hard, to, to play easy. But when you play easy, it might be very easy for you to get through easy. So it's like this notion of like challenges relative by the person. And this, you know, the idea of, you know, getting good as you, as you, uh, as you said, you know, I know that's kind of a, a jokey phrase and I don't mean to, you know, attack the idea of, of get, getting good. No, but, me neither. I just but, meant it's not always useful advice. No, <laughs> you know? what, exactly. Yeah. What it's done is it's, it's, it's sort of made us a little bit bullish to the idea that maybe we should have a conversation about challenge. Um, and again, going back to the idea of options, right? It doesn't necessarily have to change the creator's vision because you could literally go to, you know, there could literally be a setting that's like creator's vision, like play this game how the creator intended it. <laughs> but you can still have yeah, yeah. those those granular levels of, of tuning to be like, hey, in case you don't want to play this how, you know, this nameless face you created this game wanted you to play it, play this the way you want to play it. And you yeah. think about that and it's like, you know, what do we, as a, as a community, what can we gain from that? We can gain more players from the experience, from the experiences of being able to jump into more games the gaming industry would benefit from the money available. I mean, there's this, again, this sort of false idea, you know, sometimes that permeates the space, which is like, these game companies got enough money. And I'm like, you know, from the industry side of, of things, there's a lot of people that are getting laid off, laid off. There's a lot of studios yeah, yeah. that are closing down. There's a lot of studios who have to find publishers for funding because the game, the game industry as it stands isn't necessarily sustain, sustainable for anyone who wants to make a game. So you look at all these factors and you say, I'm not trying to encroach on your your choice to play this hard game. And I'm not trying to dilute this experience for you. All I'm trying to do is have someone else have the opportunity to experience that game in the way that they want to experience. You can still go on Twitch and say, yo, I played this game at the hardest level. I'm a complete badass. You can still do that. You can still flex that you played the game in a hard way. But why can't someone else also experience that in their own way yeah. and have that same experience? And why does it matter to you how they play that experience? Right. Why would someone else getting to experience the game in any way infringe on your enjoyment of playing it how you want? That's, I think, why Celeste comes up so much as a great example. It threads that needle so well. Definitely. I think um, the developers have talked about how they were going to call a syst mode cheat mode to kind of evoke the game genie and like, you know, old school, you know, the Konami code or whatever. Right. But they didn't want to put that value judgment on it. Absolutely. Right? So when you when you turn on any of those assist options, it says like, hey, FYI, the way it plays is the way that it's, it's like you said, it's the developer's vision mode however we understand that there's a variety of reasons why you might not want to play that way so sure. go crazy Absolutely. and then there's even in, in celeste there are then those super hardcore kind of speed runny things like the golden strawberry where you have to like get through a whole world without dying that <laughs> i'm mostly not going to do but that's there <laughs> if people want to flex it's purely a flex i think it doesn't even count toward your like strawberry count at the end right, right. It, is, it is there as a flex you can do all of the above right right and you know the idea is that 
you want to create accessible experiences um, that are, you know, that have equity in terms of the value that you get from it. Um, and that's really all we're saying here. You know, we're not saying that, you know, you you beating the game on hard is the same as me beating the game on easy. It's about the experience that we had when playing the game. And again, me playing easy doesn't necessarily on easy doesn't necessarily mean the game wasn't hard for me. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and I use easy totally. in air quotes, you know what I mean? Just going, going to the common nomenclature, but I, I do believe there's room for, you know, both the, 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 the traditional naming scheme where it's like, you know, easy, very easy, you know, normal, hard, whatever you want to go with. But I do believe that there's room for more granular approaches, approaches like Celeste, approaches like, you know, Crystal Dynamics has taken with uh, the Tomb Raider franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you tying that back into what accessible, what accessible player experiences uh, are, are aiming for, are aiming for is the idea that you can build these experiences into your game, not necessarily as options, but as things that you include in the root, in the core of your game, in the way that sort of Celeste has done that, where it's not just an options menu. It's we've created this game for you to have the experience that you want to have and tailor that to something that may be challenging for you or not challenging for you, for you. You can decide. Yeah, um, it does both. There are there are things both. baked into in terms of like, you know, how long your average level is and whatever that are built to make it, you know, like lowercase a accessible and not necessarily frustrating. But then there are also explicit settings where if, if that work wasn't good enough for you because they're totally aware that it won't be for everyone. Sure. You can then alter the experience further to make it what you want or need it to be. You can outright skip a level in Celeste. You know what I mean? That's like right. you could straight That's up right. skip a level in that game. You know what I mean? So, you know, to some people that might be sacrilegious, but it's like. You know, at the end of the day, how does that affect how you're interacting with the game? Right. Does it? You know, it, it becomes a harder conversation when we 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 talk about something like multiplayer. Well, then you might say mm-hmm. you might say, well, well, what if I'm playing multiplayer? Is this person going to get an easier way of playing the game? You know, they maybe they have a stronger aim assist than I do. I'm like, that's why you have matchmaking. Like, that's a design pattern yeah, exactly, called exactly. house rules that we have in the challenge sphere, <laughs> which is like let someone play with the people who have a similar level. Of, of of who want to experience a similar level of challenge, right? And even with that, if within those uh, levels, there's going to be you know a gradients of people who you know rise to the top in terms of performance, and people who maybe not perform as well. But the idea is to open up the sphere so that there are more players who are able to play and and find again those those valuable experiences, that quality of life experience within uh, the gaming sphere. Um, that's really the what competitive it comes down thing. To. Competitive things really interesting because I think when people think about the competitive nature of games or competitive multiplayer or balance. I feel like a lot of players talk about it as though they, uh, uh, Joe video games are, are going to be playing at, at a tournament level. You right. know what I mean? Like they think about it as though it needs to be tuned for tournament play when, you know, the version people play in tournament play does, but the, the house rules version you play with your friends doesn't have to be like, there's, there's absolutely no conflict between the NBA having one set of rules and you playing basketball in your driveway, having a different set of rules. And, <laughs> you know and, what I mean? And you know, to that point, there are players like Broly legs, you know, who, who, you know, does compete at that level and does hundred percent, you know, 100%. he plays, he plays, he uses his mouth to play with his controller and, and he, you know, competes, uh, in the competitive space. And if that's something that you want to do, by all means, do that. But that's when the access level of things comes into play, which is, okay, you want to compete at a higher level. Is there a controller available for you to be able to do that? Broly Legs has a customized controller that works with whatever game he's playing so that he can adequately compete, uh, you know, in a way that's you know, fun for him in a way that right. still but ni- neither needs nor wants some kind of unfair advantage for sure. Right. Like exactly. it's purely about access in that case. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's, 
I, th- I would I would love to see the space sort of evolve the definition of, of how we, we we have this discourse about about access and and about challenge versus just difficulty because difficulty is a is a rather it's a rather uh, small corner of the idea of challenge again going back to the idea of emotional challenge right like if if I mean a gr- a great example of that is somebody who you know maybe is a veteran right maybe seeing yeah. blood on screen is is an incredibly traumatic experience uh, for them. And when I say great example, I don't mean that's great that they feel that way. I mean that it's, no, you it's, mean it's a, a really clear it's, example. It's a really it's clear, a, yeah. clear example. It's a really common example. So being able to turn off gore, for example, is an emotional aspect of the game that is can provide challenge, right? Like that that can really be a challenge for someone to get through a game. You know, so there are so many aspects of of what we we have termed difficulty that are really more about challenge and really more about that idea of performance, that idea of, of, of cognitive decisions, emotional decisions. Um, and yeah. we, we really have to sort of have these larger conversations and, and the, in credit to the players in the player panels program for, you know, being so, so committed to, to helping us sort of uh, create uh, the accessible uh, player experience design patterns. Um, and by the way, there are 10 of those challenge patterns um, for a total of 22, 12 on the access side, 10 on the challenge side, um, because what we were able to do is sort of simplify um, and, and break down uh, some of the barriers that people might uh, be experiencing. And you can check out all these patterns. They're available for free on accessible.games. That's a website, accessible.games slash APX. Or you can just go to accessible.games and peruse there. But, you know, the the notion of, of these players sort of really making it clear that they just want to be able to play these games and they just want to be able to have this opportunity to connect and to, to, to connect to other players and to experience the same experiences everyone else's. Um, yeah. And as you rightly point out, that's anywhere from simply being able to play the games to in the cases of extraordinary players, being able to play at an extraordinarily high level, right? Sure. Like that's all of the above. Sure. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it comes down to practice at, at you know, at that point, but you yeah. know, it, it, what we want to do is just make sure that the door is open in case you want to go down that route. Um, and, you know, to that point, you know, to the idea of, of being able to, to experience something that other people are experiencing, you know, when we, we asked players, we did a study where we asked players uh, why gaming was important to them. Uh, we actually asked people at, at PAX East uh, 2018, and, and we also asked uh, members of our player panels program. And there were a number of, of similar themes, first of all, that came out between those two, right? Um, both people from PAX and both people from uh, the player panels program said that uh, connecting was a, was a huge uh, thing for them was a, a, mm-hmm. an important reason for gaming. Um, there was this notion that games were, could be an escape mechanism um, for you to sort of uh, experience something that you're not experiencing in your daily life. And it's important for the people with disabilities on that side, they didn't, they weren't saying escaping from their disability. They were just saying escaping from, you know, the, the doldrums of, of daily life, whatever that may be, you know, not yeah, saying totally, that totally. they don't want to be, disabled it's no and if, if either of us implied that at all that's not what i meant because I, yeah. I said something earlier about how being able you know transcending your circumstances or whatever but that's not limited to people with disabilities like i when i could fly in mario 64 that ruled i right. can't fly in regular life you know what i mean like right. it applies across the board right and, and it, you know because but i want to yeah, be clear yeah. about that because i think that totally, there totally. may be that misconception where people think that somebody doesn't want their disability wants to escape from their just from who they are and it's like for a lot of these players that's who they are that's their identity totally, totally. and they, they wouldn't be who they are without their disability 
Um, but we saw a lot of those common themes, you know, that that I bring up this idea of escape, connection, uh, games as like a, a, sh a shared art, a shared culture. Um, but one thing that came exclusively from people who identified as having disabilities, and uh, to be clear, uh, people from PACs didn't necessarily identify whether or not whether or not they had a disability. But for those who did, on that side, we found that enabling and enablement was a huge theme that came out of uh you know playing video games and hmm. for these players with disabilities for these players who identified as such games were you know a way for them to sort of be on an equal playing field a level playing field as everyone else um and this that's tied to the idea that they do want to compete they do want to play alongside uh you know their their counterparts in the space and they do want to to feel the same feelings that we want to feel when we play games and by we i mean you know you and myself who you know don't identify as having disabilities per se you know so sure. It is, it, it's incredibly, uh, it's incredibly important that we remember that for players with disabilities, that experience, that idea of enablement means that they're able to experience that they, something that they might not necessarily get outside of games. Um, and as you talked about being able to fly, you know, in, in, in Mario Galaxy, like that is an incredibly liberating experience. And for anybody, for yeah. anybody. And we just want that experience to be available to other people. Um, and that's sort of, you know, on the research side, that's kind of been the focus. And, you know, thankfully, I think people in the industry are, are recognizing uh, the importance of that. Uh, you know, as I said, Crystal Dynamics, uh, you know, they uh, they were they participated in the the course, the APX practitioner course um, around those design patterns. Um, you know, we also we also trained some folks over at Avalanche. Um, we also trained some folks over at Volition. And we're starting to see that the industry recognize the importance of, of, of having those experiences um, available to players. Uh, and the, the, the awesome thing about being a part of, 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 of educating uh, the, game, the gaming community at large about what these players are telling us is that we get, to, we get to see developers sort of have this shared language about how to talk about accessibility that we hadn't necessarily seen in the space. And this is not me making this up. This is something that I, I, I've heard from the developers. And in fact, Square Enix, uh, in, in the post that you know, I talked about where they're talking about uh, you know, Crystal Dynamics' approach to accessibility, um, they even say that you know, accessible player experiences has given them a language, a shared language through which to communicate uh, you know uh, the barriers that they might that players might come across when uh, they're playing their games, um, and this idea that game developers can now talk about accessibility in a way that you know is 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 broken down and isn't complex. It gives them something that you know uh, previous approaches to accessibility might not have had, which is they can talk about accessibility during development. They can talk about it as early in the phase as possible because they now have a way to address that. Um, you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of the current uh, approaches are sort of based around checklists, which aren't bad. Checklists aren't a bad thing. But, you know, the issue with a, a checklist is, you know, if like, let's say let's say we're going to the store, Drew, like we're going to go cook. We're going to cook dinner for our parents. Right. Me and you, we're going to go into the store. We're going to get a bunch of ingredients for our parents. We're going to create this this awesome dinner. And our parents, you're making me, you're making me long for social cooking. Experiences. <laughs> but yes, I, f I follow your example. Yes. We walk into the store, we pick up all the stuff, we're picking up pasta, we're picking up, you know, we're picking up meats, we're picking up, you know, a bunch of dairy products, we're picking up all kinds of stuff. We get to the cash register and all of a sudden, you know, your mom runs in, my mom runs in, they give us a list and they're like, here, these are things we want you to cook. And we look at the list and we look at our cart. And nothing's in, 
Nothing on the list is in the cart. And now we got to push through everybody who's behind us in the line, go back and find everything else and, and get the stuff that we need. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, checklists are kind of like that, where you, you have a checklist, you usually look at it at the end of your game, and then you're like, holy crap, I didn't do any of this stuff. Now I got to waste time. I got to waste resources. Now I got to go and implement this stuff into something that may not have necessarily been designed to do the thing that this checklist says I need to have. Um, so it, it, it creates a, a problem. And again, you know, going back to the financial side of, of game development, it creates a, a financial burden, you know, where you now need to figure out how you're going to afford the resources to add what this checklist has said. In um, the last mile where you almost certainly have other stuff that needs to be done before release. Right. And, and what if you, maybe, maybe you're like, oh, you have a checklist at the beginning of, of the game. All right, fine. You walked into the, we walked in the supermarket with a checklist. Does that checklist tell us how to make you know, the pork chops mm. that mom wants to eat? Not necessarily. It may have the ingredients, but it doesn't tell us how long we need to, you know, have 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 the meat on the stove, right? It doesn't tell us how long we need to, you know, uh, you know, we get home ready to cook and we find out we should have been marinating the pork chops for the last three hours. Exactly. Or yeah. Exactly. You know, so and, you know, it may even be so, it may even be something where we get the list and we don't even understand the word that's on the list. You know, we're like, I don't know what marinate means, you know, <laughs> you know, <what laughs> <mean? And> that, <laughs> totally. That's yeah, yeah, what yeah. it might be for a checklist for a game developer. They're like, I don't even know what this feature means. So our, our our idea behind accessibility was to, to to dissect it in a way that allowed developers to understand and and frankly to create a safe space where they could ask the questions they need to ask in order to understand. Um, because part of if we're ever going to make games uh, as accessible as as we possibly can, there has to be a a a, a bridge between uh, the experiences that players are having and the experiences that developers are designing and. You know, we, we see that with, with game testing. We see that with, with feedback on Reddit. And we see sort of the, the ugly side of feedback sometimes. But, you know, to be able to create a safe space where developers can can really create a culture within their 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 studios um, that fosters that accessible design thinking is really key if we're going to ultimately uh, make changes in the space. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's infinitely easier to bake that stuff in from the beginning if you're willing to commit to that. And if you see the value of it and if you can convince your boss of the value of it, sure. then to do a mad scramble to try and stick it in at the last possible second. You're no question right. there. You're absolutely yeah. right. And and that's sort of the approach that, that we've had with, uh, you know, uh, with APX. Um, and, and thankfully, we've seen a lot of support in the space. And again, this wouldn't be possible without the, 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 the players that have contributed uh, to the research behind that. And that's... That's what happens when the community, the, 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 the disability community is, is hurt. That's what happens when we, we sit down at the table and we just, we listen to what they, they have to say. We perceive yeah. what they're trying to communicate to us. Um, and frankly, you know, a lot of things in the world would be a hell of a lot better if we could all do a little bit of uh, listening, a little bit of perceiving, a little bit of watching more, yeah. instead of, <laughs> you know, going out there and, and, and determining what what we think people want to see and what we think people assuming, want. assuming we know best or, or be, or maybe, maybe more to the point, you know, being afraid of other people thinking we don't already know. Right. What's best. You like, know, per, yeah, yeah. Perhaps the, the age old, uh, adage that you hear about assuming is when you assume you make an ass out of you and me, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah, that's, and you, if you, if you admit what you don't know, then you'll, then you'll, then you'll learn, then you'll know everything. Absolutely. You know? like that's, that's the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, even joining on that note, 
Do you have time for two more questions? Absolutely. I know we've been going about an hour. Absolutely. All right, cool. Absolutely. So this, this first one comes from uh, my niece, Haley, uh, who um, who got really excited when she heard about player panels when I was researching. Hi, Haley. Thing, by the way, she... <laughs> hey, shout out to Haley. Uh, she, um, yeah, she plays uh, mostly on Switch with a little custom uh, thing for the Joy-Cons because she plays with one hand sure. and she has visual impairment. So, you know, so like she, she and I talk a lot about like learning new games, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and she wanted me to ask you, you know, this, this probably has to do with both the challenge piece and the access piece. Sure. But, you know, which of the things that you work with in terms of, um, in ter- you know, in terms of talking to developers and all that have to do with just like helping people learn the button layout? Because like drilling what the controls even are mm-hmm. is definitely one of the things that keeps her from diving into more new games. Sure, sure. Uh, first of all, uh, Haley is such a beautiful name. Hi, Haley. Um, <laughs> thank you for your question. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a happy medium between teaching controls and things to people playing the games and also not making them feel like you're insulting their intelligence um so you sort of have to Mm -hmm. find a balance between cleverly allowing them uh to to be informed about what you're doing in a game like through tutorials and 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 uh various uh levels of introducing uh new mechanics um and it's sort of a a a a drip a a Sort of a, a slower way instead of dumping at someone in the middle of a, of a game and telling them, have at it, enjoy, you know, like so th- <laughs> that one static screen of what all 16 buttons do. Right. Isn't, isn't really that helpful for anyone. Right. Especially isn't helpful with the, the, the multiple the multiple modality way of thinking. Right. So you definitely as from a developer perspective, you definitely want to have uh, tutorials. And and again, you know, even with something like hints, right, we see now hints in games, you can turn those off or turn those on. So allow people to have an element of, of choice in the hints they receive. Um, maybe even break down hints into something like combat hints, exploration hints, navigation hints, so that people can sort of maybe turn off or on whatever hints they want to see before they start a game. Um, and what we would call that is we'd call that the helping hand design design pattern, which is on the challenge level. Um, and then also on the challenge level, we have a pattern called training ground, training ground. And what training ground addresses is giving people spaces where they can make mistakes freely and subsequently learn um, the mechanics that they need to in order to get by in the game. Um, and this idea of a training ground, um, it's consequence free. Like we want, there should be mm-hmm. a, a the ability to to test out mechanics without having to experience uh, the 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 learning curve within game and 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 you know uh, undergo those consequences. Um, a great example, a really simple example is, uh, you know, uh, a, a firing range in a shooting base game, right? Being able to go to a firing range and just practice all the guns. Uh, I know Apex Legends uh, added something like that um, in their games. Um, mm. Another great example of that is, uh, I know in uh, Deus Ex, Mankind Divided, um, they're actually a really good example of, of trickling out mechanics as you proceed through the game. So when a new mechanic is introduced, um, or let's say they're teaching you how to do stealth, they're like, hey... This is how you do this thing. Do you want to practice doing this thing in a consequence-free environment? Cool. Let's go and do that. They take you to a virtual arena where you can try out the stealth mechanics, let's say, that they're trying to teach you. And um, you can repeat it over and over as many times as you want. You just keep, you can press a button and you start right back at the beginning and you repeat it as many times as you want. It doesn't affect your progression. It's consequence-free. Then when you're done, you can press a button and they're like, hey, you sure you want to leave? Are you done? You ready to go? And you're like, yeah, take me back. And you go right back to the regular game and you're That's able great. to proceed. 
And so, when, that, when that option pops up, a player who's affronted by the very idea of a training ground can just say, no, no, I'm good. You just bounce. <laughs> like, problem solved. You yeah. just bounce. And and that's why, you know, I go back to the notion of allowing people to be able to turn that stuff off. Because for some people, they may not want that. Maybe they do want the the, the trial and error of, of the trial by fire, so to speak, of going through the game and, and, and you know, trying to, to, to learn those skills. Um, but, you know, having places where people can make mistakes, I think, is, is really key. And subsequently, uh, you know, having those helping hands that provide hints and, and directives as to how you can uh, progress in the game are, are really crucial, I think, to uh, the overall learning curve uh, in gameplay. Yeah, yeah. That was a I really good question, I, Haley, by the way. That was an excellent yeah, question. Oh, well, I'm, she'll be happy to hear it. I can, <laughs> I can picture her smiling right now, and it's making me real happy. <laughs> I know for her, there's also a hardware component. You know what I mean? Sure. And, like, it's not, not just in the question of, like, the, the artist currently known as the adaptive controller, <laughs> but just, like, the literal, like, knowing which button you pressed when you press it. I know, like, when she types, mm -hmm. you know, a, a butterfly keyboard is infinitely harder to, to be sure about than sure. a mechanical keyboard, you know, with, like, nice 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 blue switches or whatever. Sure. So sure. it's, like, part part of it is also a question of just, like, the hardware getting more responsive or clickier or nicer in general, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's an example of something that everybody would be able to appreciate, but that, that is going to mean more to some people than others. Yeah. And even in that example, you know, we have a couple of patterns on the access level that address stuff like that. So, you know, we have a, a, a pattern called flexible tech century. Um, we have a, a pattern called flexible controllers that, you know, allows you to, to have different uh, modes of input. If the mode, the mode of input that is the primary mode of input isn't ideal for you. Um, you know, for example, if you're having trouble uh, entering text in a game, uh, can you hook up a keyboard to it and, you know, type in what you need to type in? I mean, a lot of games have that support now. I think even on the, con on the hardware level, consoles have that support. I know the Xbox and, and PlayStation 4 does this. I can't speak to the uh, Nintendo Switch. But again, you know, having different modes of support um, in that respect for, yeah, yeah. for, uh, for people to be able to have those methods of input. Um, and also, you know, to, to undo mistakes if there is input that you didn't want to make. I mean, I know gameplay is part of mistakes. Um, but partic in particular, I'm talking about, uh, you know, mistakes that are, are detrimental to the gameplay experience. Um, for example, if you, you know, don't want, I mean, this is kind of, it's kind of a, I guess, more extreme or, or more simple example. But if you didn't want to, you know, unstrip the armor from your character in a game, right? Like you might have accidentally pressed the button that unequips everything. Like, can you undo that and put that back so that it un undoes the, the the changes that you did? Um, that's the undo redo pattern on the challenge level um, where mm. I think mean, another simple example is you're in the settings menu. And I do this all the time where I change the settings for something and I'm like, man, I don't even think I want these settings. Can I restore it to default? Can I mm. restore the menu to default? Can I restore individual settings within that menu to default? Um, and and I think that that goes the same for for inputs that affect uh, you know crucial aspects of gameplay. Um, which you know that's up to the developer. You know I'm not saying that if you didn't mean to to punch a character that you know you should be able to undo the punch because their gameplay is certainly about consequence. But when that consequence sure is unforgiving it's that's when it becomes a barrier right when that consequence is like man like i can't i can't get past this part because i can't i can't get this input right i can't just get this input you know this input incorrectly you know that's why you have design patterns like bypass right that allow you to maybe uh, skip a certain experience that is challenging for you or slow it down which is another design pattern which allows you to maybe increase the amount of time that you have to press that input so you know the the great the thing about you know, how we approach accessibility is that 
there are so many different options to how you can uh to how you can to how you can open up the experiences for other people um and it, it really it really is something that can be approached in multiple ways so there's a lot of answers to i think the question that uh, that she has in that respect yeah yeah no that's that's really great thank you for that of course no thank um, you for asking and I guess, I guess the, the thing I potentially want to end on is something that I've heard you say in other interviews, but that I, I'd love to hear you talk about a little more. Sure. Uh, what you said in, in the interview that I'll link to that I'm thinking about uh, is that ultimately what you're doing, what Able Gamers is doing is about legacy. Sure. It's about like leaving the whole space of games. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my interpretation was it's about like leaving the whole space of games better than how you found it. Sure. And you know, when, when, when you and I are gone, what does the world look like? Is it better and can more people enjoy the good things about it than when we showed up? Is that is that sort of too broad or too narrow or, or sort of on point with with what you mean by that? No, I would I would say that's on point, man. I mean, I think I think I think too often we either get bogged down by the idea of legacy or we don't think about legacy enough. Um, you know, hmm. we don't think about the impact that we're leaving behind. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our time is finite. Um, and at the end of the day. There have been generations before me that have paved the way for gaming to be where it is now. Um, and, you know, ultimately, we want to create a, a more accessible world as new technologies are introduced. So how do we how do we create an environment? How do we uh, facilitate an environment where we can make sure we're malleable enough so that when new hardware comes into play or new software or new gameplay mechanics come into play, we can make sure that we're, we're able to adapt and change, um, especially as capabilities change, um, you know, on the idea of, of, of being, you know, of, of finiteness, if, if you will. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. You know, um, the older, I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old um, and I want to game as long as possible. I want to game into my, my, my old age. But what I can do as a gamer is going to change as I get older. So. This idea. You and I might you might you and I might already be past our esports prime. I'm sorry. No, you're using those microseconds. You don't got it. Listen, man, you I <laughs> that is not news to me. And <laughs> and frankly, about these aching bones, I'm I'm okay with that. Because <laughs> you have to put me in a Epsom salt bath, you know, after some of these esports sure, competitions. Sure. You know, but the idea is <laughs> the idea is, you know, uh while we might we're gonna be getting older and we have to make sure that as we get older, we're, we're, we're facilitating opportunities for other people to play. Cause it's not just important that I play games. It's important that the next person is able to play games. And I think the idea of, of legacy is, you know, who do you touch and what do you leave behind? And for gaming, there's an interesting legacy that gaming has where gaming is now, I mean, gaming used to be a niche thing where, you know, after a certain age, you didn't tell people, you know, as a, as a, as a male, you know, as a, as a male growing up in the nineties, like, after a certain age, you probably didn't tell people that you play games because you thought it was this geeky experience. And then I found that at some point there was a time where like it was cool to be a gamer. Like it was cool for me to play games. It was a it was an accepted thing. And many more people around me were playing games. And and I thought to myself, I was like, man, like that that really changed. And the idea behind that is what are we what are we thinking about how the gaming community uh interacts with the the larger culture? Um, that we we have, uh, you know, in our lives, and I look at gaming as a way to connect. I w- I look at gaming as as shared experiences that we all within a community are able to experience. I look at it as, especially in the midst of this pandemic, I I look at it as a form of stress relief. And as gamers, are we are we 
are we adequate? Are we doing what we can to have those experiences available to others? What are we going to leave behind when I can't game anymore? When, you know, my time is done. Am I going to make sure that, you know, the 30 year old 30 years from now, uh, you know, is able to, to play the game with whatever, you know, uh, abilities they might have. And I think with able gamers, you know, you know, let's say 50 years from now in a perfect world, you know, able gamers doesn't yet exist, but 50 years from now, I want to mm-hmm. be able to say that the people who may be a part of able gamers um, are, are fighting new fights because the old fights have, have already been won um, and we've already made progress. And, uh, you know, from a legacy perspective, you know, like the people that are in the org right now, you know, are, you know, the awesome team that we have, like it doesn't end with us. So we have to make sure that we do what we can to to open up the gameplay sphere to as many people as possible so that when the next fight comes, when the next hardware, new hardware comes, when the next form of software comes, we're we're able to 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 lay the groundwork for those things to be more accessible too. And you know, ultimately it'll it'll bleed into the larger world if if we're able to to make those changes one step at a time. And that might be a very idealistic way of looking at it. Um, but you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that we have a long way to go. But uh, you know, I know in the, in to to point to the age old adage, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know what I mean? But somebody still got to try. You got to try, and it's that's know. right. No, and I think there there is a beautiful. Um you know, humility and truth to the idea that as, as any kind of, you know, activist or advocate for change, your goal is to make your own job irrelevant, right? Like the, yeah. the work you're currently doing should, the problem you're working on should be solved so we can solve more problems Absolutely. and the world can keep getting better and better and more available to people. Absolutely. That's, that's what it's about. Absolutely. Thank you again. I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me about this stuff. No, thank uh, you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Of course. I'll tell people where they can find Able Gamers. Uh, I'll link to all this, all the links you mentioned. I'll put in the show notes. Yes. I'll link to you on Twitter because people people deserve to follow you on Twitter because oh, you're, you're a good follow, if I may say so myself. I apologize in advance for anyone who follows me on Twitter uh, because <laughs> I, 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 may, I may say things about food that you don't like, um, but... <laughs> I warn you that I am unequivocally right about my food opinions, um, and Mm. uh, there's nothing you can do to stop me. Because uh, we had a we had this is a side side little side note for the end, but we had David Galindo on who makes the uh, Cook Serve Delicious games. He also has very strong opinions about food. (laughs) He will he will like go out of his way to pick fights almost. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's it's delightful. Oh yeah, I don't think I don't think uh, anybody who who listens to this is going to mind some opinions about food. Uh, I saw some watermelon slander the other day, and I had to I had to adopt the 24 hour rule that I adapt, which is when I see something that I'm not happy about, I just, I take 24 hours, I put the phone down, I'm like, I can't look at this. So this I saw this watermelon slander, I was like, I gotta put my phone down. I gotta sign I off need to Twitter. Ask, watermelon because... slander? People were bad-mouthing, like, watermelon? They were, generally? They were bad-mouthing the fruit of the gods, my friend. I can't I believe don't... it. I couldn't believe it. I mean, like, I, what? I, I I couldn't believe it, man. Like I have met I have met people who are uncomfortable with the semiotics of watermelon. But for those listening, not in the U.S., watermelon is like a weirdly racialized food in yes. terms of like depiction in media. Yes. But I've never met a person who like doesn't appreciate like like when you get right down to it, the actual act of eating the delicious watermelon. Like that's just bizarre. There like, there is a rebellion uh, brewing. I, I'll tell you that, and uh, they are they are fighting against the the omnipotence and, and deliciousness of watermelon <laughs> that se- to me that seems very futile i i, I don't know uh, it's it shouldn't be futile but it's not and it's man we need to arm ourselves everybody <laughs> all right so we'll stay strong it's a war coming everyone <laughs>
<laughs> I wish you luck in the wars to come. Yes. Um, all right. Cool. <laughs> Thank you one more time. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, have a good night. Yes, you too. Thank you, everybody. And that's the show. You can learn all about Able Gamers and their work at ablegamers.org. You can find Greg on Twitter, at Greg J. Hazy. Content warning, contains food opinions. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with all manner of all support, all the time, every day, from Francis Michelle Lopez and Lucio Valentino. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker, using icons from The Noun Project. You can find the show everywhere podcasts are a thing, and if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash etao, but honestly, this month, whatever money you give me will probably end up in community bail funds, so go ahead and give to those instead. If you want to give to some very good causes associated with this current moment, itch.io is also still hosting a gigantic, unfathomably gigantic almost, bundle uh, with a minimum of $5. Pay what you want, pay what you can. Uh, I will link to that in the show notes as well because it's just, I mean, you should just do it. It's so many weird and wonderful games and they're such good causes. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other. See you in two weeks when Yu will be on the show to talk about Knights and Bikes, Ratchet and Clank, maybe a little bit of uh, subsurface circular, all kinds of good stuff. Looking forward to that. See you then, everybody.